2: It's the Autosport Podcast, we look ahead to the German Grand Prix and ask if Sebastian Vettel can get his form back on home ground. Formula One heads into the German Grand Prix weekend full of hope after dramatic races in Austria and Britain. But for Sebastian Vettel, it marks the return to the scene of the mistake while leading the race that marked the start of what has been a very difficult 12 months for him. I'm your host Ed. Sure and joining me to look ahead to the German Grand Prix weekend is, is
1: Stuart Codling. How, how's your temperature management going on? It's 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 not cool here, is it? It's not. The, the temperature gauge in the car said 38.5 degrees before we got out. And of course, when you're in a car that has delightfully effective aircon, as our higher car does... Um, you you just sort of ignore it. It becomes just a number on the dashboard, and then you get out, and it's like walking into a blast furnace. Fortunately, we've chosen wisely with our hotel, and it does have aircon.
2: Yes, that's a good choice. We have gambled with leaving the aircon on while we're doing that, just not over a bottle of water while doing that. Fortunately, though. Yeah.
1: If if I on. if I can describe the scene to the listeners, Ed has rotated his his desk in this chic ibis, and he's now sort of sitting parallel to well 90 degree to the window almost and and to my mind he looks like a keyboard player in some sort of minor 70s band on an old episode of top of the pops minor 70s band yeah I'm, a
2: major one surely
1: I'm, I'm thinking of that that almost like that rod stewart performance where john Peel's playing the mandolin in the background
2: <laughs> excellent well I, th- I think we've ended up going into territories unexpected once again it's only taken you Sorry, a-
1: we've gone straight off on a tandem yeah, with- a couple before couple we even of, talked about formula one
2: exactly yeah, a couple of minutes so I'm, I'm hoping that people won't be able to hear the air conditioning too loudly in the background but we've uh, we've turned it down but left it on so that's that's the the good strategy because i think again I'm now convinced it's not that hot outside. So.
1: Well, I I don't want to start smelling like the lady who is sitting next to me on the plane to Frankfurt because that is uh, punishable by death. I think.
2: That does sound unfortunate, but it was uh, it was very very warm. Well, let's let's get on with it. Obviously, the drivers will be enjoying the uh, the heat or not as it as it may be. But Sebastian Vettel is the the, the focus. We have to go for immediately it was here last year when he went off while leading the race as as sebastian himself has put it it was a, a minor mistake you know it happens he just happened to do it at the corner with the gravel so crashed out of the race hit the hit the wall but it's not that in isolation is not it? any of these incidents he's had could be one-offs but it, it, it has been 12 months that victory at spa obviously that, that came at the start of the second half of last season aside it's been a really really difficult year for him
1: Feels like he's been chasing results, and I wonder if that kind of pattern started this time last year here in Hockenheim, where he did make that mistake and you know went into the gravel. There was lots of swearing, lots of pounding of the steering wheel, and it seemed like after that, with 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 Spa being kind of the outlier, was where he began to chase results and he started to make mistakes that he might otherwise not have made. I'm thinking particularly of the first lap in Monza where he got tangled up with Hamilton in a sort of needless defence. He sort of ceased to play the long game. He was trying to win every corner and it was almost like a switch had gone off on his brain and he was having to fight. And when, when a driver's doing well, as Lewis is at the moment, it seems like they can do no wrong almost, and if anything does go wrong, they recover from it very quickly. Whereas Sebastian, it sort of feels like when it gets away from him, it gets away from him in a in a big and increasingly large way.
2: Well, of course, last year Hamilton did get in a little bit of trouble for the way he cut across the uh, the pit entry to make to make his pit stop, so it wasn't without uh, his little moments. But I think you're I think you're probably right about Vettel. It's that it's that challenge, isn't it? That when you've made a mistake, you can't you can't undo it, you can't make up for it. I guess that's the partly the team's job and partly the individual's job to kind of put it behind them and move on. But yeah, I agree with you on forcing the issue. mean I've spoken to Sebastian about it, and his argument with some of the later season errors, particularly a little bit later than Monza, for example, his collision with uh, Stappen when he went off at Suzuka, his argument there is well, I had to be aggressive and go for it because there wasn't really much, too much to lose. But then the, these little errors have continued into this this year. Obviously, Silverstone, he rear-ended. Max Verstappen, you know, mistake. There was no intent there. Canada, even before the, well, I mean, the, the thing that caused that whole debate about whether he should get a penalty was the mistake when he ran off the track. He had the spin while battling with Hamilton in Bahrain. So basically, since since that off last year, basically one in every three races, there's been a a, a pretty serious mistake. And I think that's the thing. I think any one mistake, you can that there is always a circumstance. There's always mistake. It's very very difficult driving these cars as well. People like to make out it's easy. Sebastian Vettel's a phen- phenomenally good driver who's really having to put the car on the edge to get, to get the best out of it. But the fact there's been this this litany of errors, it's like he's in that spiral he can't get out of.
1: Yeah, if it's you know, it's really easy for us to sit in our chairs and look at endless replays and say, well, you know where you went wrong because it's quite obvious viewed from multiple angles and in slow motion. Whereas in in the heat of the moment. You know, it, it happens so fast, but it is the decisions you make in the heat of the moment that, that define what happens. And that, well, his, his rear-ending of Verstappen at Silverstone was a case in point. That move was was never on, even before Max shut the door. There was only what half a car width.
2: It was strange. It was it was like he had it in his mind. That's what he was going to go for.
1: Yeah, where, where, and, wherever and and he, was committed was, he was to it go, from, there. he was
2: committed to it from so early on, but wasn't able to adapt to to what what Max was yeah. doing. And Richard, that's I that's
1: thought. the worst place you can do a move like that because the track slopes slightly downwards, so your braking is going to be harder. So you know, lit- literally a, a mistake in the heat of the moment. So while we can analyze something like that and say, well, that was stupid, actually, yeah, it, it was. As you say, he committed to that. Regardless of where Max was on the road, he just thought, "Okay, right, I'm going to go there." He positioned himself accordingly, and Max just sort of did his usual sort of thing, where he's occupying every part of the track concurrently, and, and it was never going to work. Yeah,
2: I think, obviously, Vettel himself, there's no doubt he will be trying to understand what's causing this, and uh, I mean, he'll he'll be trying to rationalise each of those incidents as a as a one-off. It's not a one-off because it's happening quite often now. All the instances are a little bit different, but that that's a real source of concern for him. I must admit, I thought that with a change of regime at Ferrari, maybe that might change the pressure he's under. And I, I did have very and well, still do have doubts about whether they've created an environment that is the best for Sebastian Vettel because he's quite an emotional guy. Red Bull were very, very good at getting that under control. Obviously, Rocky's race engineer was extremely good at that, and it's almost like it just doesn't quite work so it's it's the red mist isn't it and adding on top of that he's got the problem of Charles Leclerc and the other car certainly on the previous three on the last three weekends has looked has looked stronger so it's like he's got this sort of pincer from both sides he's got Lewis Hamilton who he's trying really really hard to fight for the championship with and isn't really able to not really his fault that's the car's fault this year but then he's got Leclerc Trying to assert himself and stake a claim that, uh, that this is his team, he's the man of the future.
1: And now he's almost starting to overdrive the car, or or, or not getting the best out of it. Now, you spent a fair bit of time trackside at Silverstone, and Gary Anderson, our tech guru, did as well. And neither of you were particularly impressed with Sebastian's inputs. It kind of felt uncommitted. I think was, was I the think word it, used.
2: yeah, Gary suggested it was that way. I think. In many ways, it was almost more than that in that the car's, the car's understeer. It's got a weak front end. They haven't got the front end load that they need. That, that's clear. Charles Leclerc talked about it previously that that's, that's their biggest weakness. And so that means they've got an understeery car. Vettel doesn't really like an understeery car, but Leclerc was able to hustle it a little bit more. Whereas Vettel does what I kind of call sitting inside the understeer, where you go to the corner, you've not got the front end grip and load and you just sort of live with it. And it's, there are things you can do just to capitalise on it. We watched a lot of Brooklands, which is a long left hander at the back of the, the Wellington Straight. Used to be called the National Straight, so it's a long corner. So you can see, you can see kind of the little bit of hustle that Leclerc was bringing to it. Nothing massive. He wasn't being ridiculous. Whereas it just wasn't working for for Vettel, and and again, that's gonna that's gonna make it harder for him because if he's not getting the pace out of the car, it's one thing that Ferrari isn't quick enough, but because he hasn't got say Kimi Raikkonen in the other car being. Most of the time, slower than him, he's got a driver in the other car who's dragging the most out of it, and suddenly it's just multiplying the the whole pressure on him. And, it, and in Silverstone, also, it was it was particularly stupid, really, because he'd str- he'd struggled for pace all weekend, but the race had come to him because of the timing of the safety car. He was going to finish higher up than he would have done. He was still ahead of Leclerc, if uh, even if he'd let sort of let Verstappen go past him, and Verstappen was was past him basically, so. That actually could have been a reasonable salvage job, but just that one... It's almost like he was just so focused on got to get back past, got to go up the inside, that he wasn't playing the hand that he'd been dealt. He was playing a hand that he thought he was going to have when he got into you know, onto that approach to, to club corner.
1: Also, Silverstone is one of those circuits where there's quite a few corners, particularly brooklyn's where where you were spectating from where there's more than one line you can take so you you, you can experiment and that there's there's a little bit of wriggle room if if your car's performance parameters don't particularly suit one way of attacking it you can try uh, you can take take a slightly different tack whereas i to the best of my mo- my knowledge there isn't really anywhere at hockenheim these days where you can do that it's a much more linear track in terms of what you can do and when you when you kind of look at the nature of the Hockenheim circuit it's it's more technical than it used to be you know it, it used to be kind of just flat out into the trees until someone's engine blew up and then whoever had the fastest car that didn't blow up was kind of the winner it's now much more technical it's got fiddly little corners that are probably going to play to the mercedes strengths and there's kind of only one way to tackle each each corner so i'm not quite sure that it's going to be a great venue for ferrari especially if you know the 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 weather forecast i know we're a few days out but it's looking like the weather's going to turn we're going to get thunderstorms we might kind of get a repeat of the conditions we had last year so this could be a race that comes to someone like the the red bulls rather than the ferraris
2: yeah i mean it's it's Often the gaps are quite close at Hockenheim. Um, as you say, but there are some slower corners which are good for, for Mercedes. The, there's a, there's one decent long straight that'd be good for, for Ferrari in qualifying. Jim, but Red Bull, Honda are becoming stronger and stronger. And it, it's not really a great place for Vettel to come to if he wants to try and get a, a restart, shall we say, after this run of troubles, because he's got the added pressure that he's the home hero. It is the German Grand Prix. His record in the German Grand Prix isn't stunningly good he's only won it once and that was at the so he's never won at uh, at Hockenheim so it's not kind of it's not a comfort blanket of a weekend should we say whereas if we were at Spa for example you might think oh I won here last year great yeah I've had lots of success here so that's the that's the interesting thing and we should really say that although there's a lot of focus on on Vettel as I've said the Ferrari has not been strong enough overall and that's the fundamental problem Ferrari's not, not winning the championship because of Sebastian Vettel However, if the car was as strong as it as Ferrari would have hoped it would have been, then they might well be in a position where they were were well, not, not winning it because of Sebastian Vell, and that's the big concern. So so looking at this, this weekend, I mean, as you said, there's you can make a case for several different cars being strong. I think it's it's a pretty good track for racing this one. So qualifying normally a fairly tight spread. So we're kind of hoping for another maybe asking for an Austria or a or a, a Silverstone, where the, the lead's changing hands a couple of times early on with uh, Hamilton and Bottas battling. But there, there's kind of the hope that this could be quite an interesting race.
1: It, it, it is a circuit. Like I say, it's, it's quite technical. It's got a few sort of sections where there's a change of width. So we, we, when you get into the old stadium section, it all of a sudden gets very narrow and low grip. So there's lots of kind of bits that differentiate the performance of the different cars. So there's Bits where you can get closer to the car in front, and then you've got that long, curving straight towards the the hairpin that's usually good to nail someone under braking. So there's room for it to be more varied there. It kind of does almost, it it hinges a little bit in my mind on the conditions because if it's as hot, if it's carries on being as hot as it has been uh, if, if the weather doesn't break, then in theory that might play to other people because the Mercedes seem to be quite on the edge in terms of their cooling. And we saw in Austria that um, they were having to manage their pace quite a lot. There was an awful lot of lifting and coasting that Bottas was having to do towards the end of that race. So it, it was very challenging for them. On the other hand, conditions might change. So it it's it very much up in the air. It would certainly be good if someone other than Mercedes won, apart from for them, because they're enjoying their uh, centenary celebrations. on—oh, It's 125 years, isn't it, of, of Mercedes. They've put out all those uh, press releases in courier typeface, and they're, they're really making a meal of it. So in some ways, it would be a shame if someone could knock them off their perch here. But in terms of interest in the championship and looking back on some more interesting and varied races we've had um, in, in recent weeks, it would be good if someone could get in there.
2: Yeah, very, very much so. And the heat could very, very well be the enemy for Mercedes this weekend. They'll be hoping it doesn't stay as warm as it is because it does create a, a, a limitation. It's, it's down to the way that the concept, the approach are taken to cooling in that it's better to have the potential performance in the car and then manage it in race situations. That gives you the more usable race car. And there's just a few places where, where things go against them and Austria was one where they just yeah that both drivers were having to drive massively massively within the car's potential just to keep it alive
1: it's going to be an interesting challenge in the press room which is basically a marquee isn't it if it carries on being hot with its portaloo toilets out back that are going to be quite grim by the end of the day
2: yeah that'll, that'll be fun they do have air conditioning in there though that's that's
1: quite useful joy but, unbridled let's hope the wi-fi works this year
2: well, wow, that's the uh, that's the key question. Nothing nothing makes a group of journalists more angry than Wi Fi not working. That's uh, we'll
1: we'll let Dieter Rankin go into bat for us on that front.
2: Yes, he's got he's got uh, previous very formidable warrior when it comes to uh, media centre internet. That's uh, that's for sure. I guess the interesting question is is Red Bull and and Max Verstappen Silverstone perhaps surprisingly was their strongest performance if you look at the pace the pure pace the peak pace of the car. It was the closest they've been to. To the front.
1: Yeah, Max Max was talking about pole position maybe have been on but for the turbo lag he encountered. And what a turnaround that is when you think on paper, Silverstone would not have been a circuit you'd have naturally thought a Honda powered car would be strong at in you know in the past few years since they came back.
2: Well Honda's cracked on really well and I think Red Bull, because there were, there were concerns with the Red Bull, because they, they were struggling aero-wise, the new rules did seem to cause a little bit of confusion that they were trying to get on top of, but I think the, the front when they introduced in Austria has made a difference. It's always very, very hard to say what's changed, but there's a there's a reasonable chance that it's all down to the the whole f- management of the front wheel wake and the interaction of the of the front wing arrow with the with the front wheels when there's lock on, not lock on, etc. That's a real area that's huge. In fact, Gary Anderson has been talking about this a lot recently, particularly with a uh, with reference to Mercedes, that he feels they're very, very strong in terms of moving the aero center of pressure when there's lock on that kind of thing, obviously, once you get into a corner. There's a you you'd like to get a little bit of the aero center pressure forward. With, there's various things you can do with that effect that that aren't obvious. It's, it's it's the nature of Formula One cars now. It's not just there's a load of downforce and grip. It's it's about how it's delivered and how you control it. And uh, certainly Gary's theory and it's it's very very uh, compelling. Is that Mercedes are very good on that. And I think Red Bull have probably helped themselves with that. Ferrari's the interesting one because obviously they went down this this road of having the as as others have the slightly cutaway front wing if you want to call it yeah, that
1: outboard load i was inboard loaded i think the aerodynamicists yeah, yeah. call it the, yeah. but
2: the trouble is that this is again coming back to what gary anderson said he said the big problem is you are giving away a bit of load to do that now front load is their is their, their big limiting factor so that there's a question there about what that means for for ferrari and we will we will see probably some tweaks to the ferrari this weekend as well probably everyone will have some bits and pieces so again it'll be interesting to see i mean The championship's gone for Ferrari, surely, barring some kind of miracle. uh, Yeah, still half a season. You you
1: look at Mercedes and where they are, and and they're they're in a place where they're finessing an already strong package. And if if you're getting into the level of detail where you're able to manipulate the centre of pressure and you're doing it successfully uh, over a range of different circuits, that kind of shows where you are in terms of your understanding of the basic package. Whereas Ferrari seem to be to some extent, chasing performance, also having to row back on certain developments, so it feels like simulation correlation isn't quite there. They've they've added a little bit of nuance to that, talking about boundary conditions in the wind tunnel and saying that it's maybe ambient temperatures and things like that that are having different effects than they expected. But all in all, they're they're not in a position where they're finessing an already strong package. They are trying to find big chunks of performance.
2: Yeah, and that's just – they're basically sort of chasing their tails on that because every time – all the time they're investing in that and trying to find some of these problems and and solve them. Mercedes are just building on and building and building on on what they've got. So, yeah, it's tough opposition, Mercedes. And, you know, we we should give them credit for what they've done because it's an astonishingly well-drilled and effective team because whilst, yes, they've got the people and the resources – they're one of three teams out there that can achieve that level and they're the ones who have consistently done it across the board. So perhaps as uh, as predictable as it's made made things, they are doing what they are meant to do.
1: They're just doing a very good job and you, you kind of wonder where the outer limits of their performance really are because there are certain circuits, we talked about Austria earlier, where conditions didn't play to their strengths, they struggled for cooling, they're on the back foot a little bit and they actually looked a little bit weak but then you look at Silverstone and Lewis Hamilton doing the fastest lap of the race on the last lap on tyres that are 32 laps old
2: yeah just to uh, to underline (laughs) how uh, strong they were I I, I mean, people suggested that that means Mercedes have got seconds of performance in hand they haven't but it, it does show they're very in control I think that's the that's the really big thing for them just just able to go into races not not trying to force the issue, just playing their hand. And then when you get a race like Austria, where they were limited, they were able to manage it and just say, right, we're just going to have to have it's 400 meters of lifting coast, which is about eight percent of the track. That's, length.
1: that's an awful lot of lift in, in
2: Austria. Well, there's a point where Hamilton was on the radio just saying after his stop, he was just saying, right, so I just got to sit here then. And they're like, well, yeah, that, that's what you've got to do. And it was it was searingly uh, hot there. So uh, yeah, that's a good uh, a good question for uh, for them now. We're talking about teams doing a good job and I should do one of our updates on IGP Manager.
1: The, uh, well, are you now going to change the subject to teams that are not doing very well? Well, it's all relevant,
2: or uh, relative rather, to the expectations and the targets and obviously the the autosport igp manager team that's available on android and uh and ios you can, you can download it really uh, uh a fun game there you basically you manage every aspect of a grand prix team make your decisions about strategy about what you invest in who you recruit etc cetera, etc cetera. and we did have a very very bad first half to two-thirds of the season where we generally existed outside of the points which was a bit uh a bit unnerving but we did start to qualify well and pick up a few points. We had the, we had the final round recently in uh, in Abu Dhabi, qualified second, very very strong, and finished uh, finished down in uh, down in ninth place, which was not ideal. Uh, had to hold off the tenth place car. Some good strategy decisions made in in there, saving some of the, uh, the some of the boost you can manage boost in the races to to late on to hold off fifteenth in the championship with ten points. I will admit that's a slightly disappointing tally, but Given the the curve improvement, now, if Williams gets to the end of the season with ten points, you'd say that's quite a good recovery, now, wouldn't you? You've rehearsed all your excuses. You could go into team management. What I want to know uh, is, any, our heads going to roll? Any team manager, any team manager, team boss knows how how to practice the uh, the art of putting a positive spin on what they've done. No, I, I don't think heads will need to, need to roll. The uh, I won't need to start selecting some sacrificial lambs to to blame, but it's all about continuous improvement, isn't it? Yeah, I blame Jake Boxall leg for anything that goes wrong. Well, our technical crossman thats very, very fair. I mean, he hasn't he hasn't brought much to the design side. So
1: no, no. Maybe you should recruit Giorgio Piola to that side.
2: Well, we could get him to work some of the magic that he did on the, uh, the Mazzario F1 car. He had a, a small, small involvement. I like winding him up about that. <laughs> <laughs> that and his watches, but let's not go there. Exactly. Yeah. Watches are much more recent, uh, recent thing. But yeah, it's been a, it's been a strong, uh, finish. The, the championship was won by, uh, by Peter Mann, whose, uh, level of performance is quite remarkable. I must say, I, I do feel a little bit like someone at like Williams looking at Mercedes and going, oh. That's good. Maybe so, we should
1: get Peter in next podcast and uh, drill down into how he does such a good job, where uh, the combined brains trust of Autosport can't do it.
2: Well, I do intend to uh, pick his brains uh, liberally in order to try and uh, learn a few things. But uh, the good thing is, it's an upward trend. An upward trend is a, is never a bad thing. So that's that's something. So we just got to make. Is, some is it
1: an upward bettors. trend when actually measured properly with a trend line, rather than just looking at uh, a few bits out of context? Well, That's if you, also if, what I want to know. If
2: you picture a graph where it says naught points for two-thirds of the season and goes up to 10, particularly if you do that on a favourable scale, that can look a, a fantastic improvement.
1: Yeah, there are lies, damn lies, and then there are bent uh, trend lines.
2: Exactly, exactly, and were you to perhaps plot that against the champions' points, it might look like slightly less impressive progress, shall we say. I think it would go from uh, from a mighty, uncategorised climb on the Tour de France to, uh, to a brief bump if you were to uh, change the scale. <laughs> a small but, ramp exactly a small ramp but yeah yeah um the good the good thing is it's not meant to be it's not meant to be easy it's meant to be uh difficult so i've I've quite enjoyed the fact we've managed to make uh, steady progress you can pick all sorts of areas to invest in i'm slightly puzzled at the fact our cars very quick in qualifying but not so quick on race pace so that's an interesting interesting something you don't see so often in in formula one in, the not real, in
1: real life formula one no it's it's something that uh you you used to have maybe in the 80s and 90s when there's a Possibly tire wars on. Do you remember Pirelli used to do a mega qualifying tire?
2: Yes, Pierluigi Martini up front. That was a good. That was always a a, a good moment when you got uh, some of those amazing qualifying performances. But yeah, um, uh, I don't think fifteenth in the standings is very good. But neither do I. A positive end to the season. That's the important thing. So next season. I'm going to be very, very careful here and uh, avoid making uh, declarations. But what I will say,
1: you manage expectations. Next season will be better, and if you keep stringing together one season after the other is better, you will eventually get to the front. I think I heard the thump of you hitting the hitting the bottom there as you dug for
2: excuses. Exactly. Well, it will basically will just muddle on. Sometimes doing better, sometimes doing worse, and eventually I'll get sacked, which is kind of the fate for.
1: (laughs) It's inevitable.
2: Exactly, exactly. That's that's the fate of uh, of most team bosses. But yeah, IGP Manager that's available iOS and Android. So uh, yeah, you can download that from the, the usual places and uh, try and be a little bit better than I have been at it. Well, let's get back to the world of Formula One. Talking a little bit about some of the uh, the wider topics, the Haas team codders. now we have this whole Farrago with uh, with rich energy. The the bigger concern for Haas is the fact that things have been going quite badly on track that the car is fundamentally quick.
1: Yeah, it it actually you, you did mention cars that were quick in qualifying and then dis- the race pace goes bumf. The VF19 which Kevin Magnussen in particular seems to be able to conjure magnificent one well, lap fifth, pace. Fifth in I'm
2: qualifying from. in Austria. You don't do that unless you've got a good car. Now, Silverstone didn't go well, but they had... that This is where just the tyre... The pre- I think I think there was a bit of a team error there. Magnussen didn't make it through Q1, and then Grosjean got into Q2, and he was just consistently one second or more slower than he'd been in Q1 without any major mistakes, and the, the team did seem to admit there was a little error with the prep because obviously the way you cook the tyres, for want of a better phrase, before they go on is significant. I think maybe there was a team error there, but... Yeah, it team's all over the place. They're basically going into races now with the full expectation that they're just going to slide to the back, even if they do qualify well. They were doing this experiment in Silverstone, whereby Remigrosian reverted to the Australia spec.
1: Kevin Unfortunately, was, he reverted to uh, 2011 to tight, yeah. uh, head case spec.
2: Yeah, crashing in the pit lane in FP1 was, was unfortunate. And of course, the two drivers collide on the first lap of the race. And that's the big problem because they were talking on Saturday about how important it was to get the race data c- comparison across these two cars. Very, very different specifications. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, I mean, that was, that was just totally unnecessary. No wonder team principal Gunter Steiner was just at the end of his tether, uh, tether with them. And this weekend, there is an upgrade on Magnussen's car. So they're going to benchmark that against Grosjean, who's still continuing to use the Australia spec, which he says he's more comfortable with. So they'll be hoping they can actually get some meaningful data, but it's, it's strange, isn't it? Because yeah, people have been struggling to get the best out of the tyres, but you do wonder if there's a wider problem there, some kind of aero problem, just something that they've not really understood that's causing problems because yeah, you can have problems if you can't get the tyres working, but this is, this is extreme, the situation they're in.
1: Well, by all accounts, and I'm going to use a little bit of exaggeration here, one of the manifestations of the problem that car has is that they, they take a set of race tyres off and the Pirelli engineers look at it and the outer surface is pretty much cremated inside. It's colder than Siberia. And, and there's they don't seem to be able to understand how they're overheating the outer surface so much and yet not generating temperature through the entire carcass and and, and inside it. So that's uh, a fundamental knowledge gap. Th- to my mind, the, the error experimentation is a bit weird. I can understand one of the drivers reverting to spec one in order to provide that benchmarking, but presumably you're doing that so that you can try to understand where you've gone wrong in development. And because development isn't necessarily linear you're kind of looking to build incremental improvements i don't understand why they're then putting a supposed upgrade onto magnuson's car because in effect they're just going further down the rabbit hole there aren't
2: they that's the danger i mean i think their argument is that it, it is the trajectory they're on so there's more there, there should be more load more downforce more load there so it's not necessarily a, a bad thing to do but i do think moving the moving the, any goalposts when you're trying to understand stuff is a is a concern. So yeah, it's 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 really really difficult to to know what what the team can do to get on top of this because it's ruining their season right now. And it, it is really strange that you've got a car that's so that's that's fundamentally pretty good and capable of being a leading midfielder, but it's just a, a non-entity in in so many races. There've been times where the drivers have said it's been like driving in the wet, and the whole thing about the as you say about. The thing about getting the surface overheating and then the, the carcass that's on the insides of the tire being underheated has been a regular problem for, for them. And of course, there is a black art there because the real key to get the, the, the tire turned on. So it's really chemically bonding to the track is actually in the compound temperature, which is the sort of just on sort of just underneath the surface and the carcass. But that's the bit you can't actually measure live you have to infer that temperature from you can measure the surface and you can measure the uh, the uh carcass but not the uh not the compound itself uh, which is uh, troubling for them so yeah they, they just need to get on top of it and the fact they they're doing these quite extreme moves and the fact that this that extreme silverstone experiment was compromised by the two drivers driving into each other which I think you know you can apportion blame however you want in that you could argue that that Grosjean had a bit more share of the blame, but you can also say why was Magnussen putting his car there? Their number one priority—they weren't going to score points—was to get data, and that's why they're so angry with them. And they—they they they are both capable of being infuriating drivers because they're—they're very—they're both capable of being extremely good, but also just these st- stupid moments that may you just go. What are you thinking?
1: Yeah, if if you're going to put your fingers in the till, don't be surprised when it slams shut. So t- to my mind, it, it it was 50-50 between them on the first lap of Silverstone. Like you said, it was probably a little bit unnecessary of Grosjean to allow his car to drift wide. Maybe, maybe he couldn't actually do anything about it. Maybe that was just his natural trajectory. But Magnussen put himself in a position that was going to cause him problems. And if you look at any first lap of a Grand Prix at Silverstone since that layout was put in, it's always been a bad move to put your car there. At your most extreme end, you end up like Raikkonen a few years ago. He went straight off and then straight back on again in a move that nearly ended up decapitating Max Chilton, if memory serves.
2: Yeah, it was a bit of debris flying around, wasn't? Wasn't there? So yeah, I think Hass need just to have a calm, sensible weekend and really understand what it is. They can't keep just blaming the tires because yes, the tires are difficult. Same for everyone, though. Exactly. So they're they're, they're tricky and there's a narrow window, but it's not magic. It's not you know they've got a, they've got a car, they've got a certain level of aero load. Certainly not the lowest aero load car in the in the in the pack, no question. So you know, if you're someone like Williams, you say, well. They're finding it harder to work the tyres properly because you you warm up the tyres and you work the tyres by basically just squashing them and sort of loading them laterally, don't you? That, that's the two ways you can do. it. And if you've got less downforce, less aero load, it's harder to do that. But yeah, has need to do something about that uh, that pretty badly. We should also what what did you make of the uh, of the twenty twenty one vision that has uh, has emerged of late in terms of the uh, in terms of the calves there's some excellent Giorgio piola illustrations of of the idea i mean some appealing things
1: there with uh there's some interesting things some some of them are old ideas that have been going around for a few years and and there have been discussions about going back to ground effect I'd, i'd say kind of almost over the past 15 16 years when 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 we had such a thing as an overtaking working group various people were saying what we should do is be generating more underbody downforce because it is less affected by the wake from the the, the car in front whereas increasingly over the past few years Formula One has gone towards aero surfaces that are increasingly sophisticated and are hanging out there in areas where they are disrupted by the the, the wake of, of the car in front plus Formula One teams don't design their cars with the with the wake as any part it it has no bearing on their thinking they're designing the car to operate um in you know in clear air and they're designing it to to maximize performance they don't care about the wake that's coming off it so this is where the the FIA really kind of need to be three dimensional in their thinking as it were because they're the ones that have to shape the rules in such a way that the pursuit of performance doesn't cause that problem, where the wake of the cars uh, is, is so deleterious to the performance of the car behind.
2: It's an extremely interesting question and challenge because inevitably, by definition, any kind of aerodynamic device is going to be affected by the turbulence to some extent. You can't eliminate it, and I don't think the the sort of switch of focus to underbody aero will, will eliminate it entirely. The question is, can it mitigate it to to a good level? Because obviously. You know, we talk about the return of ground effect. Ground effect's always been there. Cars do work in ground effect. It's just not with the, the underbody tw- uh, tools and, and tunnels that they, they have done in the past. I think it certainly makes sense. They've gone for a much more simple, if you look at the front wing, it's basically just three planes, fairly simple, none of this complicated end plates, jiggery-pokery. So that should be less easy to compromise with the terms. it still be compromised but obviously, if you have a really, really optimised aero, it's quite it's quite critical by its very nature. So it doesn't take much to to. Improve. So there's some there's certainly some some positives there. But the the big question is whether it whether whether it'll have the transformative effect that is hoped, and that that's the that's the big challenge. And on the one hand, it's extremely difficult to achieve that because they are cars moving through air, so they will create turbulence, they will create a wake. And there are certain reasons why some of the underbody designs will be better for that, because in some areas it's just about sort of squeezing the air, and you know it's it's not about hitting a a, a surface in the same in the same way. So there's things you can do, but on the other hand, they need to be extreme in their their approach to it.
1: The, the there's been a very interesting report recently from the cycling world um, where there have been complaints over recent grand tours of the influence that camera motorcycles have had over various riders in breakaways and things like that and and there has been some study published recently that concluded that one of these motorcycles with either a photographer or a cameraman perched on the back of it um, can have an influence on people behind up to a range of about 50 meters now you think that that is quite a long way and and as one of the motorcyclists in question pointed out you that, that that's too far for TV images, so we're always going to be in in that range where we're going to be causing problems. So in Formula One, you can you can understand how just the the effect of a much bigger and bulkier thing passing through the air than a motorcyclist with a camera and perched on the back does create this hole in the air. Now that hole in the air can be advantageous, you know, we get the toe from it, but also because because that air is disrupted it is naturally just less useful for downforce producing surfaces. So we are always going to have this problem. Uh, like I said, I don't think, and I've said it before, I don't think teams should be involved in the design process because they're acting as a roadblock. Formula One as a sport and as a company has enough Technical expertise. It's got people like Ross Braun, Pat Simmons, Nicholas Tombassis. No, he's on the FIA side. Basically, the FIA and Formula One are stuffed with experts who have designed race winning and championship winning cars. They should be able to come up with something between themselves that is a useful concept. And we also have enough simulation resources to properly find out if it will work rather than just throwing a problem at the wall and seeing if it sticks or throwing a solution uh, against the wall and seeing if it sticks.
2: The encouraging thing is there is a there is a reason why it should be improved because having the sort of the big Venturi basically running down the whole car, that should be less prone to influence from turbulence. The figures they've they've put out, they, they've they claimed it's something like 45% of the downforce you lose when behind another car and that the 2021 idea cuts that to 5 to 10%. So that's clearly an improvement and as we said you can't eliminate it entirely. So 5 to 10% is probably quite a good a good number and in fact that that downforce loss figure currently 45% has steadily grown over the past 6 7 years it's just increased very significantly.
1: When when you think that the one one of the last major major rule updates 2009 came at the behest of the overtaking working group as was and you had this idea that by fitting a large front wing which for that year I think there was the option of having a, a movable plane that acted as a sort of a drag reduction system but no one bothered with it because of weight and it didn't work as, as well as expected um, but the idea is that by having a nice big front wing and a really small rear wing that there would be less disruption or a smaller wake, and that never happened. And it immediately opened the way for the outwash-generating wings, which which was one of the keys to the Braun GP car's success. that's
2: that's the unfortunate thing, that actually the problem was ultimately made worse by the OWG stuff. And in fairness, that was a a project that was much, much smaller than what we've got now. Basically, all the teams stuck in 50,000 to pay for it, did a little bit of work. And they weren't able to really get into the consequences, et cetera. So it was what, what they did was, was perfectly decent. It wasn't a failure as such, but the parameters of its very existence and what it could actually do meant that it can never be an overwhelming success. Uh, but it, one other thing that interests me about this is the fact that, uh, Formula One's got this rule breaking group that, that's looking at the rules, and trying to find loopholes and things to close them down before they become a thing, which is, which is interesting. It means that.
1: You know, if, if they don't do it, someone else will.
2: Well, that's the thing. I mean, ultimately, you're still going to have a small group of people there doing it and spending their time on it. And then once they're thrown out into the big wide world, the final rules, you will have a total of 10 teams and literally thousands of people trying to find a, a sneaky way around it. And obviously, as history shows us some of the, the basis for these can be very extreme. I mean the whole double diffuser was possible because of a very questionable definition of what was a whole, ultimately.
1: <laughs> yeah, if you ask Adrian New about that, and he will go to his grave saying that that whole thing was a Max Mosley stitch-up uh, just to be for, for political purposes. Well, there, there, yeah, there, there
2: was that whole dimension to it. And yeah, the, this is this is the big problem. It's how extreme do you want to be with your interpretations, etc. Previously, they were reliant on teams asking questions, so you'll send a thing through say oh we're looking at doing that is that okay and they might say no or or yes that's fine but obviously you'll you'll hold things back you know, for example I, I always enjoy the fact ross braun about the whole double diffuser thing always likes to say well i told him this would happen and no one believed my downforce figures which always quite amusing from the from the uh the 2009 regs that uh that yeah nobody believed because uh, funnily enough that whole idea came from a, an Aero group in japan that was working on it that, that was where that idea came from and it fed into the super guru team as well the um toys from Williams also came up up with it one of them I think did get the idea came to them via the same origin should we say somebody getting wind of it and I think one of them did it completely independently possibly toyota they worked out the same <laughs> the same thing
1: yeah you know it was it, it, it was an interesting interpretation but none none of them managed to create as effective a package That's as the Braun, true, because, yeah. because they didn't they, they didn't master the outwash generating front wing so the the it, it was a very good package, and, and like you say, it should have been because they had what three different wind tunnel programs, and uh, the equivalent of two or three whole design teams just throwing out concepts and, and cherry picking the best ones. So, arguably, one of the most expensive Formula One cars of all time.
2: Yeah, very, very much so. Uh, I, I do hope the 2021 rules work. I'm a little bit suspicious about them. I feel that. Moving outside the technical reign, not enough is being done on the wider landscape. Yes, we've got the, 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 the cost capping being brought in, et cetera, but remains to be I mean, that's fairly mild to start with. It's the start of a glide path, admittedly. So the fundamental problem of the, uh, the sort of inexorable share of, of the revenues, et cetera, and the, the kind of the, the baked in financial advantages of the big teams, not, not much has been done to that, but it's really important 2021. And this is, the most research based data based evidence based set of rules that formula 1 has ever come up with very very good people behind it and i just hope it it does make a good improvement that that's all we, we can ask it's not going to magically fix every formula 1 ill because there's some that are totally outside of its of, of its
1: scope but this
2: needs to work
1: it definitely does and i think if 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 all it does is to admit a few more teams into the winner's circle, then it will have had some benefit. But at what cost? You know, Any change to the formula creates a whole need for investment. And as you say, there, there are wider ills. And if, if I may be permitted a small plug for the forthcoming issue of F1 Racing Magazine, for which I've written the cover feature about, Renault who are coming up to quite a big landmark they'll have spent uh, basically by the end of this season will have spent pretty much a billion dollars on their Formula One project in order to come forth now not all of that billion dollars will have come directly from the the company purse as it were they've you know there's prize money and various things like that but that is a lot of investment just to come forth and the problem they face is is that they're always chasing Mercedes but slightly behind because the, the top three teams have a preferential share of the revenues of the constructors championship bonus. They also have a disproportionate say in the rulemaking. So in effect, Formula One is is dominated by this clique of three teams that naturally want to exclude people from from that clique. They don't want it to be widened. So they don't want the other teams to catch up.
2: And this is what's created the two division of Formula One. If you look at it, the um, the gap between Red Bull, on average, has been third fastest, and McLaren always do this in percentage terms because then it evens out the different different sets. So that's 0.9 percent gap between them. And then if you look, the gap McLaren, on average, has been the fastest, 1.7 percent off. But you can go down to Racing Point; they're only 2.4 percent off. So the gap from fourth down to ninth will set Williams aside as a special case on this occasion is significantly smaller than the gap from third to (laughs) third to fourth. So this this is the big thing. You need to create a world where. There's reasons why those teams can really aspire to be something something more because the Class B battle, as we like to call it, is re- it has been really interesting and it's been you know McLaren has done a fantastic job this year to get themselves up to fourth in the championship. They're consistently being kind of getting these sort of Class B victories or contending for Class B victories, often with Renault, in fact. But they have landed a few blows and beaten the the, the Renault works team on a number of occasions. And you look at it and say that's brilliant, but then the next step from third to fourth is absolutely enormous and will take, under the current circumstances, most likely years, no matter how good your team is.
1: Also, McLaren are a great case in point. They are a championship winning team, an organization that's had a history of innovation, of technical excellence. They've got that whole glittering fun palace, the McLaren Technology Center, just outside Woking, designed by Foster and Partners. It's it's a marvelous totem of invention and engineering purity. And, and yet, it's it's a team that's been fiddling around and scraping around at the back for years in, in a state of disarray and one that, even, even though they've done a fantastic job this year, even they admit that to push on and bridge that gap to the front of the peloton, the, the breakaway group as it were, is is really, really tricky just because of the resources it demands.
2: Yeah, there is a, there is a ceiling there. One example is that they've committed to building a new wind tunnel. They've been using the Toyota Motorsport wind tunnel in Cologne for, for quite some time. Now, they say it's probably going to take a couple of years to have it built and up and running. Gary Anderson, who knows his wind tunnels, reckons even two years might be a bit optimistic. So suddenly, even when they've got the investment to do this and you can green light something, it takes a couple of years to get it in place, which just tells you the kind of lead times we're working on here. And the likes of Mercedes and Ferrari and Red Bull have had these the kind of compounding of the advantages and that's what, even if you cap the budget, they've still spent all that money in the past on all these parts that just sit on the shelf and just roll over from year to year. The expertise, the knowledge and all these things that they can apply. So it, it you know, the, the advantage is always there. And what we've seen is just a steady, that uh, basically to, to use cycling parlance, that, that those breakaway three have basically dropped the peloton. There's no way of bridging. So that's the real, real problem. Because say what you want about Renault. I don't think Renault have done an absolutely perfect job in terms of what they can do, but I mean, why should run have been able to break through given all those advantages? They they said it will take five years and then they slightly reframed that. They said actually it's a that, that was what it was historically for a team to, to do that. But actually we think it takes a little bit longer now because of just the way
1: things have changed. Plus of course the sale went through so late in twenty fifteen that they basically spent a year pratting around. Twenty sixteen
2: that's year zero,
1: I would say yeah. So yeah, you, you you could be generous and give it to them and say okay well five years became six years because of because of that sort of wasted year the mclaren wind tunnel for me is a very interesting case because that that to my mind is and maybe to a lot of people listening seems like something that's really really obvious that they should have done when the old wind tunnel became obsolete you you think well why not just upgrade it and the the answer to that is that it was such a fundamental part of the structure i remember i've actually stood in the foundations i remember actually standing on the concrete bit where the the wind tunnel was mounted when the MTC was was just a hole in the ground. And basically they they built the wind tunnel first and then they built the McLaren Technology Centre around it. So replacing it Renovating it isn't the work of a moment. Um, we, without wishing to mention Brexit, it's a little bit like that. You know, it's it's removing something that is as a fundamental part of something. You you can't just sort of go in and unbolt it and and take it out. It's a fundamental part of the structure of that building. So I I reckon Gary Anderson is onto something there. It's going to be very very challenging, maybe quite expensive to replace that wind tunnel, and. It's taken someone from outside coming in to look at that and say, okay, however much it costs, it has to be done because it's ridiculous having a whole team flying out to Cologne to sit and do their research on remote. That is where we're losing out. Aerodynamics is critically important. Those people need to be doing that research here in the factory where the car is designed and built.
2: Ultimately, that decision has been driven by Andreas Seidel, the new team principal who I that's had a tremendous amount of success with Porsche. And I think, I think it's exactly what that team needed actually. Someone to come and say, right, this is what we do. Because sometimes you do have to take that. That uh, You want to spend a load of money and get the performance benefit tomorrow, not in two years, three years time, but sometimes you have to make those decisions. So very, very encouraging. Yeah, I think, and, from he's,
1: and he's, he's, he's not one of the, you know, very many people listening will probably be familiar with companies where, uh, high profile recruits, come in on a substantial salary and have big ideas that they want to enact straight away. And typically those people are out on their backsides within six months when it turns out to be a total flop. When what, what to my mind would have been very impressive about Andreas Seidel was that he didn't appear to be that sort of person. He came in, he wanted to get his feet under the desk first, work out what, what was working and what wasn't working. And, 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 just learn about how the organization worked before he decided to make changes. And he said he's still in the process of doing that. So for him to be observing that process of just measuring the organization, learning how it works before he makes changes, but thinking, okay, right, the Rolls Royce in the junkyard, the thing that sticks out like a sore thumb is this wind tunnel that isn't working for us. That needs to change right now so let's get that thing, ball rolling
2: it, it wasn't going to magically become an obsolete so, so you know they, they had to do something with it and there, there were times where they were able to make a little bit out of it because it was used by obviously when lots of manor had a technical partnership they were able to use it but no, that that's, that's just mitigates yeah. a little bit some I, of I, the, I know the they've money. been
1: trying to um, hire it out to the road car industry as, uh, as, as a sort of a renter tunnel um, in the same way that one one of the wind tunnels on site at Mercedes, because of course they have they have two wind tunnels in Brackley from back in the day when you could have as many as you want, they they've got one that's kind of no longer cutting edge and useful for Formula One and which the regulations wouldn't allow them to use. They do all sorts of aero research in there for for other companies that can come and rent it. It's a nice little revenue stream. Yeah, Williams,
2: Williams have done the same. They've got two. They've got the second tunnel up there. So same thing. And in fact, um Sauber as was uh, obviously Alfa Romeo still use their tunnel, which is very, very high spec. They they invested the money they got for letting Kimmy ride. Yeah, yes, Jason the,
1: the, the tunnel that Kimmy built extremely,
2: extremely well. There, it's funny. I, asked, I was speaking to Kimmy and about the the circumstance of his previous departure, and he says, "Well, it was quite a good investment from me, so I moved on." And then, whatever it is, seventeen years later, I come back and I can benefit from the, the, the tunnel that my departure uh, departure facilitated. So. Yeah, they, they are, they are useful assets for Formula One teams, but they need to be to the high standard. There's a reason why people use Tide to Motorsport. In motorsport, so much because it's a very high-end tunnel. It was kind of a no expense spared, and you know, all all wind tunnels are not equal, should we say? And some of the best ones for motorsport are not accessible, should we say? You know, if you're if, if you're a Formula One team, you want to go and use Red Bull's wind tunnel because you think it's very good. They're not going
1: to let you, are they? No. And the 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 interesting thing about Red Bull's wind tunnel is that the actual fundamental architecture of it is really, really old. It's an old M.O.D.
2: facility, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, it's fascinating. All these these little facilities because people don't. So you know, there's a, there's a Toro Rosso aero facility in the UK. That's that's their aero base for for an Italian uh, Italian based team. And obviously you've got teams like Racing Point are expanding and looking at what they're doing. So there's uh, there's wind tunnels all over the place. We used to have actually local to uh, where where. Autosport F1 racing used to be. the uh, yeah,
1: yeah, the National Physics Laboratory used to be used by McLaren, I think. Yeah, yeah. McLaren uh, the, the, is su-
2: super-guri as well used it.
1: Yeah, the, the, all the championship-winning McLarens from the 1980s were fettled in the National Physical Laboratory's wind tunnel, which is almost opposite where Autosport and F1 racing were based. 38 to 42 Hampton Road, Teddington, now a block of high-end flats.
2: Yeah, that was, that was where I started Autosports. That, that was about... Seven offices ago, I think we've <laughs> we've gradually moved inwards towards London. We're uh, we're in Richmond now, so we've uh, we've gradually edged along. Well, I think we've digressed plenty there, but uh, as well as looking ahead to the race, we've looked at some of the wider issues in Formula One. I'm sure there'll be lots of talk about that this weekend. So, thanks very much, Stuart Codling, for your for your insight, and I'll wish you good luck with your mission to avoid the heat.
1: Well, if there were an ice machine around here, you could bury your head in it. But I don't I don't think that American style innovation uh is uh something that we'll be blessed with in this delightful ibis i'm, I'm quite jealous of your room here because you've got a little bit of extra width between the bed and the wall you actually have proper room to unfurl a yoga mat should you feel the inclination whereas um i have a feeling that if, if i uh, adopt too many stressful positions where, where, when i'm stretching uh, later i might just bang my head on one of the shelves well, I look forward to hearing some of that
2: banging and crashing. You'll hear the,
1: you'll hear the yelp from down the hall. The,
2: the, the, the thud and then the, the yell of pain. Well, that's, uh, that's a good image for everyone to have of what you, you get up to on, on Grand Prix weekends do check out autosport.com for the latest from the world of Formula 1 and the rest of motorsport obviously our plus subscriber area for in-depth features, interviews, analysis, opinions from the world's leading motorsport writers. Autosport magazine is out every Thursday. Do check out sister titles motorsport.com F1 Racing magazine which is out monthly uh, and also Motorsport News which is out every Wednesday. If you like this podcast do uh, subscribe to it if you haven't already done so. We're normally out every Monday and Thursday. You can get this podcast in the usual places and of course uh, you can go onto the Spreaker website and like us on there. And I should say, Stuart Codling,
1: as we we had a preview episode recently, does have his own podcast, which is called the Flat Chat Podcast. It's called Flat Chat with Codders. You can search for that in your podcasting platform of choice. And uh, we we are about to drop a new episode next week. We are. Um, going to record it on remote so just down the corridor there will be a recording we'll be communing with our expert mark gallagher who's in the south of france so what could possibly go wrong
2: yeah the technology will be a challenge there but we're turning a uh, we're turning our hotel into a hub of podcastery so that's uh, very very positive well thanks for joining us we'll be back soon with another auto sport podcast